the Sufi poet Hafiz wrote a poem called It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light. It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. I want to speak tonight on the encouragement of the light of metta, the understanding how the concentration part of metta practice affects metta, how concentration itself polishes certain qualities of mind, and uh, how these qualities counter hindrances that arise, how these qualities protect the mind of metta. And uh, I want to speak some on the understanding of the, the purifying nature of metta. It is how we see and learn clearly from the hindrances and how the purifying power of metta uh, breaks down the barriers, the barriers of separation. The, the metta practice falls in one of two really general categories of meditation. Those two categories are calm and insight. That is calming practices, concentration practices with the aim of tranquility of mind, purifying the mind through uh, removing temporarily the hindrances that distract the mind, bringing the mind to stillness. Whereas insight is um, one of the uh, wisdom practices whose aim is to see very clearly, moment to moment, the nature of experience. And through that scene, the deeper and deeper purification, loosening of attachment, and the very roots of all the hindrances, the very roots of the uh, obstructions of mind, greed, hatred, delusion. These two can be combined. And in fact, that's what we're doing. We're using metta, a concentration practice, in the service of wisdom. Certainly for the, the longer retreat, we'll, there'll be the uh, movement from metta into vipassana or insight at the you know, next week. Uh, but even how the metta is presented, it's presented in the context of wisdom because the metta is the wisdom of selfless love. It's love with understanding. So the way it's taught, the way we receive it, the way we practice it uh, is in this larger context of wisdom. But it's helpful to understand the, um, the practical differences in the meditation. Uh, in the in the insight practices, we, we develop the momentary concentration, the awareness of moment-to-moment changing events. And these calm or pure concentration practices, such as metta, it's a, it's a fixed concentration, a one-pointed, unwavering awareness of the, the object that we fix it on. In this case, it's metta. Metta and the other uh, divine abodes, the other Brahma-viharas. That's the goal of the meditation, not only to concentrate the mind, but to concentrate it 
on one of these powerful spiritual emotions. So two things are happening. We're getting the benefit of the concentrated mind. You know, as when I'll talk about in a minute how the polished factors of concentration uh, counter five traditional hindrances in meditation, but also we get the benefit of, of metta in its purifying power of protecting, of melting the barriers since the separation and reconnecting us to that uh, basic innate sense of belonging. As a concentration practice, we use certain techniques. In, in, in the beginning, of course, metta isn't going to be readily available, especially the pure metta, the Brahma-vihara metta. So we use representations of the metta. We use the subject that we focus on, a visualization of the metta being, or if we're not really visual, uh, the felt sense, we call the being into the, into the sense of the presence, to a felt sense of presence. And, and the phrases. These are in service of the metta. They're not the metta itself. And it's important to understand so that we have a sense of, um, of valuing the phrases. The, the phrases that we introduce or whatever adaptation you use are like four ways of expressing the same thing. It's the nature of metta to be protective inwardly and outwardly. It's the nature of metta to um, loosen the distress in the mind, to free up the mind, to make us naturally happy, the, the natural happiness that comes when the hindrances fall away, the sense of being at peace with whatever is happening. This is the nature of, of metta. So we're not thinking these phrases. The phrases are merely being used as a kind of fanning um, uh, the, the spark, the ember of metta. It's metta's nature to bring whatever degree of healing is possible in the body, bringing the body into balance. And it's metta's nature to uh, help establish our sense our way of being in this world so that we see, we view the world through the lens of metta. May I care for myself happily or may I live joyously, uh, gracefully in this world. So it's not too much to ponder. At a certain point, the phrases can be an obstacle. In this way, the phrases serve, like in the insight practice when we use mental noting, serves us to connect to the metta subject and to some degree to, to feel that underlying intention of the mind inclining toward unconditional love. And so you want to use the phrases somewhat transparently, somewhat loosely. Uh, there are skillful means. And when you see that they're super, superfluous, is there, the metta flow is, is already engaged, you can drop them or distill them down to one phrase, one word, if it still seems to keep, a, um, you, know, keep you on the metta subject. The same with the visualization. You know, we, we visualize the person or beings in the different categories. You can see the categories as a way of collecting the metta. 
So it fills up and then naturally spills over from easy objects to more challenging metta subjects. And in that way, it's, it's very visual of how the barriers begin to melt and fall away. The metta practice is like um, after a, a, a real hard rain that fills up the back of a lush valley. The water collects. And then it begins to move down a, a formerly dry stream bed. And as it moves down, you know, it fills up all the little ponds, all the little crevices, crannies, fills it up completely by its nature, by the permeal and flexible and supple nature of water. Just fills up these cavities and then quite naturally overflows into the next one. That's the image we, that best serves this metta practice. The, rather than kind of going after those barriers as something to chop down, you know, there's more the sense of filling up where we're feeling fed, working with a benefactor or another benefactor or a dear friend or a group of friends. Just let it naturally fill up and then flow over. One of the great disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta, once gave a talk on uh, uh, no blemishes. The name of his uh, Dharma talk. And he spoke of the the necessity for honest self-assessment, you know, to really look at the nature of our mind and heart. What's really there? And to regard what we see, you know, as as what is, which is, you know, a wide range of, of um, uh, qualities of mind. He says, what we're liable to see at first is uh, likened to a tarnished uh, bronze bowl. And there's the awareness that the actual nature of the bronze bowl is, uh, is luminous. It's naturally, it has a natural luster to it. That realization is really important because it's a very positive view on, on uh, spiritual inner work. That is, we, we come at it uh, not like we have to get rid of these innate qualities, these blemishes, but rather the work of spiritual uh, inner work of practice is a natural polishing to bring out the luster, the natural luster of the bronze bowl. And so, too, in our meditation work, concentration, insight, it's, it's in effect the polishing of the, of the heart and mind to bring out its innate luster, luminosity, radiance. So I want to talk about um, the five different sort of polished Aspects of con- that come as a result of concentration. There are five qualities of concentration, uh, traditionally called in the Buddhist Pali language, uh, jhanic factors. A jhana means, jhana itself means uh, unification, deep connection, uh, and it's just a form of of deepening concentration from the meditation practice. Each of these jhanic factors um, has a certain very positive 
quality in regard to our meditation practice. At the same time, it opposes uh, a hindrance, a, a, a distraction or disturbance of mind. These, these jhanic factors are present in both kinds of meditation, both the calm as well as insight. They're just applied differently. In the insight practice, they're applied to insights. Here, in this pure metta concentration, they're applied to the metta, the object of meditation of metta. The five, the five factors are uh, connecting, quality of connecting, quality of sustaining awareness, connecting and sustaining awareness, quality of delight, fourth quality of spiritual happiness, fifth quality of, of one-pointed unification of mind. They all, they're felt um, often in little steps or stages, but they're all there together. And at some point, uh, they're very harmoniously developed and connected. Like, it's just like strumming five strings of a lute. All there together. But you'll start to see the effects in steps, in stages. The, the first one, um, often we refer to it, uh, vitaka, the Pali word vitaka, that means applied awareness or the connecting quality of mind. Uh, an image of it is like the awakening of a bell. When a bell is first rung, it's called the bell's awakening. That directiveness of mind um, leads the awareness and establishes it uh, on the object. You know, in this case, it would be our metta subject and or the phrases, you know, the combination of them. Uh, connecting fires the mind, refreshes the mind, uplifts the mind, invigorates. It's a sense of opening the mind from being closed. And in this way, it, it counteracts or transforms one of the first and foremost hindrances uh, called sloth and torpor. Two different mind states uh, with a very similar underlying commonality. Uh, sloth is the dullness of mind, the mind that's drifty, dreamy, hazy, often like a threshold state. Uh, as we near sleep. So this sometimes experience is really peaceful. Often we think, this is, this is cool, this is good meditation. This is what I came for. <laughs> but there's something missing. Uh, and that's energy, it's clarity of, of seeing, you know, and of really sustaining a connection to the meditation object, to, for example, our metta subject that we're holding as a felt sense or visualization, or the phrases, you know, sort of getting fuzzy. Might be, you know, going along, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of suffering, and sudden, suddenly you, you know, uh, may you be free of happiness, may you be suffering, and <laughs> drifty dreaming, you know, you know that state. 
torpor is the mind that is actually goes unconscious, nods out, feels claustrophobic, like it's a smothered image in the text is, are like uh, ashes smothering a fire. That's more like sleepiness proper. Just the awareness of these two states helps waken the mind and helps uh, reconnect again and again. It's that exercising of the mind connecting again and again to your metta subject, to yourself, to the benefactor, to the dear friends, bringing it to clarity. Sometimes, either the image or felt sense, and uplifting it with energy. That's that invigoration and that reopening. Perhaps a little more uh, emphasis on the phrases. Here's the phrase can be used in service of bringing energy. Again, not so much for getting into the dialogue, you know, the narrative. Phrases aren't meant for that. They're meant to help that connection again and again. So vitaka is applied mind, connecting mind. It's an aspect, a quality of mind that's part of this uh, polishing uh, and part of deepening concentration. The second one in the Pali called vichara is sustaining mind or sustaining awareness. Sustaining means the immersion into the metta subject and the sustaining of the sense of meaning behind the phrases, where as you're holding the metta subject, for example, there's a real sense of the protective power of metta. There's a real sense of that deep regard for a kind of happiness that comes when the mind is free of of distress, when it's at peace with oneself and the world as it is. When there's that invigorating sense of the, the, the healing or the health aspect of metta. You know, just the very buoyancy that we feel when we feel connectedness and what we would wish for the other. And regarding caring for, caring for oneself in this changing world, you know, doing it with that uh, fluidity and openness of metta, regard, responding to things with in a meta sense rather than a reactive sense, fear and desire. So once the bell's awakened, it has this resounding effect, you know, the reverberations of the sound waves. And they are to remind us of this immersing nature, the con- continuity. Vichara, or the sustained awareness, is the continuity function of practice. Goes deeper, and therefore, uh, within that sustainability, within that continuity, it begins to grow in confidence. You know, when it starts to see and feel, experience some of the effects. You hold the meta object long enough, as you've as you've seen, or you, are the phrases when you drop in to their underlying meaning, we all all feel something now and again, particularly now as we move into this this aspect of the retreat. People are starting to get really concentrated, and in moments in this container of concentration, 
Just moments where that ember of connection, that ember of tenderness and warmth is there. That anchoring of sustained awareness overcome, begins to overcome doubt. The opposite of the confidence, the opposite of the trust. As the doubt wanes, then our confidence grows, the trust in the process, the realization that this can really happen, that I do have this uh, seed of unconditional love flowing in this mental continuum. It is in there. And the right conditions of this silence and the patience and the constant deepening concentration does bring it out. Such confidence, such... Um, um, conviction is really essential for continuing to deepen, bring out, bringing out these polishing factors uh, and the clarity that continues to overcome or transform doubt into faith. The third of these unique aspects of concentration, jhanic factors, is delight. The Pali word piti. Delight, we can experience it as a, as a, as a real joy, not a fleeting joy. Uh, a, a, more as a joyous, uh, often rapturous interest in what's happening. You know, the feelings that start to develop, that sense of connection with ourselves, with others, with all of life. Things take on more of a luminous quality. Perhaps the, the meta object at times really shines strongly. The, the feeling or meaning behind the phrases, maybe you don't even need them so much because there's a sense of uh, the, the, the current of meta moving on its own. Uh, often things appear really compelling. Get a little bit of meta and we want to put it everywhere. <laughs> And we can get carried away at times and kind of lose it too. We want to fill every, everything with metta, everyone and everything, and pretty soon we get kind of lost in the narrative of it. But it has a very important um, value overall. And, and, you know, we don't want to lose ourselves. We want that delight to continue to enlarge that sense of connection, brighten the power of connection, uh, with the subject, met the subject, uh, and the meaning of the phrases, and to do its um, magic of overcoming the hindrance of aversion. Delight, joy, opposite of aversion. You know, aversion is coming, coming up, as we see. It's one of the uh, aspects that are, because they're opposite to metta, that get, it gets lifted out. The, the, the delight begins to lighten the, the aversion, to make it um, more in the background or easier to let go of. This quality of piti arises with you know, the continued return of connecting and sustaining uh, the right effort or accomplished effort that now becomes to feel more effortless. It's this piti or delight quality that makes everything seem to be happening, like, 
like the kayaker, it's now just following our one with the flow of the stream, hardly working at all. Just a little paddle here, a little paddle there, a body movement, and it corrects the imbalance. That's how this feels. Moments of uh, contraction, anger, fear, aversion, they're gonna, they'll still come up. But we start to have this more spacious delight or joy to lean back on. Five different kinds are mentioned. Minor joy or delight, kind of when you feel little tingly sensations or your you know, hair stands up like that, you know, a little rush. And then uh, momentary. So it's, it's a little longer. It's like a flash of lightning. Feel a little more like electric charges sustained in the body for a while and in the mind too. Uh, showering. It's like um, if we were lying on the beach and water is just surging up over us. So this is a beach in Hawaii. It's nice <laughs> warm water. <laughs> Not on the Atlantic. Warm water just surging up over the body, you know, wave coming in and going out. And you just feel completely saturated. That kind of rush of delight. Uplifting is the fourth of the five different kinds of, of uh, joy or rapture. Uh, and that's a very rapturous feeling of literally feeling pulled up into the air. Body often straightens, spine straightens. Uh, it feels like your head might want to go back. Feel this upward lift, momentum. And the fifth, uh, and the, the most mature and leveled, leveled out of these five different kinds uh, is all-pervading or suffusing. It's the sense of a, a, f- a continuous flood of, of joy or delight. Uh, so it's, it's evened out that, that the thrill of it and the rush of it just now feel this complete um, pervasion of, of joy, of delight, rapturous interest in what's happening. And it's real effect, you know, it's not, this isn't, we're not, we're not really going for these stages. These are, these are affects of concentration and they have real purposes. Delight in the mind is wonderful and something we all want, but it also has value in um, protecting the mind from, in this case, aversion, and so that we can really deepen in the development of metta. We just want to keep that in mind because it's easy to get attached to these states. If, if we just let them be and not start spinning out in, in narratives about it, you know, and, uh, and how we've got to get everybody into this space and whatnot, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to work to deepen our practice to deepen the metta. Emily Dixon, Dickinson said, you know, uh, regarding such a del- joy or delight of, of um, the heart or mind, she said, to live is so startling, there is little time for anything else. And that's that wondrous, joyous interest of delight. The fourth of these uh, five qualities that polish the heart and mind, called sukha, is a real profound, deep, mature 
spiritual happiness. Often it's useful to use the Pali words because there's nothing sufficient. You have to use cluster of English words to try and get the feeling. This pervading ease, contentment, gratification is what's meant by spiritual happiness. Not needing anything external to make us happy or to satisfy a, a, a desire, but rather uh, this, this profound sense of relaxation, that it's okay, just how it is. Contentment with how things are. Even when things are unpleasant, there's a sense of peace. Painful sensations in the body, or might be, you know, a difficult person might be up, but there's just this sense of being able to hold it, to hold that difficult person in the space of our metta. Don't need, you know, at that time anyway, don't need to go back to the refuge of uh, a primary metta subject like a benefactor or a dear friend. A little unpleasant, but it's okay. This sort of permeation of ease and comfort uh, overcomes the hindrance of restlessness. And you might notice when the mind isn't sleepy or slothful, uh, often it's just the opposite, it's racing all over the place. In fact, uh, when we don't really stay focused with the intention of our connecting to our metta subject, the delight, the factor of delight, when we start making stories about it, the joy and delight, the rapture, uh, can make the mind restless and spinning off. And then it gets, you know, it's like a the disturbance on the surface of the water when wind whips it. This next factor of, of ease, spiritual happiness, uh, contentment, soothes that out. You know, there's, no, there's not even that subtle agitation of, of joy, of rapture. But a really calming, really soothing, whole body, mind feels comfort. You can see the value of that in overcoming the discontent of restlessness and how the mind gets distracted. An image that of this, uh, you know, always uh, looking for the next thing to satisfy, where Michelle and I were teaching in New Mexico last summer. It's an annual retreat for environmental uh, leaders and activists. Um, it's way up in the Mississippi isolated ranch up in the mountains, no electricity and all kind of, it's quite natural and rustic but nice. And there's a dog that's always up there. His name is Elvis, black dog. And Elvis just loves yogis and yogis love Elvis. So Elvis was going through this stage, you know, he discovered that, um, he discovered that he'd get attention and, uh, um, you know, pats by going over and getting his bowl, his plastic food bowl, and then holding it in his mouth and going up to a yogi, wagging its t- his tail. You know, with this empty bowl to the yogi. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then he could get into following the yogis during their walking meditation. <laughs> And one day, Michelle and I took this walk. It's about a mile walk to the, uh, to the gate where you enter this ranch. And 
almost the whole mile down there, we saw we found Elvis's bowl, <laughs> where he finally had to drop it, following the yogi, you know, waiting for something to be put in it. <laughs> it's an image of discontent. So we have connecting mind or applied awareness, sustaining awareness, connected, sustained with the uh, metta subject or phrases or ultimately the metta itself becomes what we connect and sustain with, the metta quality or feeling itself. We have the piti, that joyous interest, uh, that wondrous quality the mind toward life, uh, delight. And we have uh, sukha, deep, contented, spiritual happiness, sense of ease, mind and body calm, even when things are unpleasant. And the last of these uh, five jhanic factors, qualities of concentration, is one-pointedness, called ekkagara, means one-pointedness or non-distractedness, of mind. This is when awareness or consciousness becomes completely unified. You know, it coheres. Like when you take many drops of water and kind of fold them together, they all join up. It's like all these disparate, myriad, mosaic pieces of our mind that kind of here and there, all of a sudden come into this unity, unification, collectedness, oneness. This is Ikkagara, one-pointedness of mind, completely centered on, our, on, on the metta. Completely centered on the metta or on the metta subject or the phrases. Not wondering. This sense of wholeness, sense of completion, together with these other states. The, the calm, the, you know, the ease of that spiritual happiness. Just enough delight, you know, to keep the sense of engagement and wonder about the process, uh, and the, um, uh, the sustaining presence of meta-awareness, the connecting again and again, connecting meta-awareness. So here it all feels now at rest, undisturbed, really at peace, like when the mind is still restless, you throw a, a, even a small stone into a little pond. It makes big ripples. But when the mind is this unified, the moments when that happens and all these five factors that come together, it's like the mind becomes really wide, like a huge lake or a sea. No matter how big the boulder, you know, it's just absorbed, taken in by the water. And, uh, and the water becomes quite still soon after it's plunged in doesn't disturb the water for long. It's this one-pointedness of mind that transforms the initial disturbing, compelling, uh, grasping energy of desire, the wanting mind. It's always looking for something else, the next thing. It can't be in the moment. It's the kind of desire that's never satisfied. So here it becomes transformed into a deeper uh, dharma desire. You know, just the desire uh, to rest more in the metta, the desire to understand the nature of unconditional love. 
the disturbing, ever unsatisfying uh, desire that's waiting for the next thing to happen or um, is insatiable, whatever the object of sight, sound, sensation, taste. Here, it's uh, greatly attenuated and turned into a, uh, a fulfilled kind of desire. We know we're in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. So the desire becomes like right motivation and pure connection with our process. When these qualities develop, when the, as the concentration, concentration grows because of these facets being developed, connecting, sustaining, delight, calm, and calm happiness, and one-pointedness, then there's this container, container for, uh, for the metta to emerge and to purify and, and to do the hard work that purifying uh, our hearts requires, you know, facing the challenges that come up. This is, I think, an appropriate quotation from the writer Rick Bass, environmental writer, uh, which helps us understand, you know, we usually don't like it when the difficulties come up, but it's really part of it. He says, there are none among us who have not been, even for a moment, cruel to those we love most, as if, uh, as if unable in that moment to shoulder any longer the magnificent weight and burden, the responsibility of that love. So we recognize, we begin to recognize how these hindrances operate in the process of the mind being concentrated. We also begin to recognize the uh, obstacles or hindrances that directly come up with metta, not just with concentration, but they either oppose or masquerade for metta. We call these the near and far enemies. The near enemy, you know, not enemy as in something bad, but because it's either the opposite of or mistaken for metta. So the near enemy is a masquerade of metta. That is, uh, it looks like it, but it's really some form of conditional love or dependent love, attached love. Maybe, maybe in a way that we use it only exclusively for intimate friends, family, you know, our own tribe, and not for them, not for others. Um, maybe we like some beings, some beings in the animal realm, and not others. You know, birds are okay. In fact, they're great and beautiful, but other winged creatures, like black flies and mosquitoes, you know, they... They fly too, and they have unique lives too, but maybe we don't feel toward them what we do for the beautiful-looking birds that we can relate to. Wanting, the kind of love of wanting is also conditional because it's some kind of possessiveness, different 
than the non-possessive nature of metta. The metta, by nature, feels generous. It feels like giving, whereas many, if not most, of the forms of attached love is some kind of there's some kind of wanting or holding there. It's to understand the difference, because in our lives, you know, we have all levels of it, and we all have relationships where there is attached love. But if we can hold it in the larger context and know also the difference between attached love and the completely uh, unattached love of metta, nothing is expected in return. Not even acknowledgement. Not even the knowledge of our love that's felt. That, that We don't need even the being to know that. Metta is not a dependent love on certain conditions or relations. It's a pure connection. A sense of uh, such purity of connection that it requires no definition in that way. So sometimes metta along with the other Brahma-viharas is called uh, immeasurable. You just really can't define it. And in fact, when it has matured for moments, as it can in, in retreat into the, the Brahma-vihara, the divine abode level of metta, uh, it feels completely immeasurable. The, any categories at all seem, they just fall away. They're not there. It seems that you can't direct it to one without directing it to everyone. You know, that's how it develops. And as I said, it's that sense of a natural filling up and spilling over. Well, when I returned to Burma about six years ago for a, a sitting sabbatical, it had been nine years or, or, or so that I had not been there, I... Um, and I went into retreat in this place in Upper Burma. And that time, it really hit me on such a deep level, the, the, the unconditional quality of generosity and loving kindness uh, that is the nature of the Burmese people. They're just some of the really happiest people. When you're around those people, you think, this is how all beings should be. They're like this. So at the end of the five months or so that I was there, I, um, I went around through the village with the abbot of the monastery where I was practicing this 14th century monastery along the Irrawaddy River. And he introduced me to um, the local primary school headmaster teachers and whatnot, a dilapida- dilapidated old building, holes in the roof, uh, rainy season, often flooded, up to three months, the kids couldn't even go to school because the river would come up uh, and cover it. And uh, that um, uh, some 80% of the students didn't, were not unable to continue after the fourth grade because of poverty, and they then start working. Uh, and that only about 40%, 50% of the villagers, of the eligible school children, even went to so to make a quite a long story uh, distilled, it started by kind of supporting a couple of uh, uh, kids to continue through school, and then uh, slowly it turned into a project. We call it the Metta Dana project, 
love and generosity. And uh, at this point now, six years later, there's a brand new school building, another one being built back up away from the river. All the kids in the village who can go to school and they're supported, you know, their books and their uh, school expenses and uniforms and so forth. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, then there was a, a period, like four years, where I was not allowed back into Burma. Uh, and so I finally got back into Burma this January. I'd never seen the school. Uh, and so it was quite an emotional return, as you might imagine. And I went up to the monastery and taught this January retreat that Michelle's been teaching for the last four years. Uh, and then was taken to the school. And the new kids, the kids in this new school, and they, uh, they knew we were coming. So it kind of would be drove in the schoolyard, a beautiful schoolyard now. It's a garden, trees, soccer field, and really one of the mo- finest built school schoolhouses in all of Burma. Uh, wonderfully done, really a learning center. It was, uh, I, you know, it's unspeakable, the feeling of pulling in there and, all, and the kids, just this uproar of delight. <laughs> all cl- from kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth. This was an elementary school. They just went wild. They just went nuts and had a friend there with, you know, movie cameras. And, and the teachers were trying to get them to show how good their lessons were. So they, they go back in and sit down but keep looking at us and then chant their ABCs or something <laughs> with such delight. They, they knew that uh, they knew what the, the value of education and now what they were able to do. You know, for us, it was just this feeling of 2,000 years of this, this Dharma being held in very few places, Burma being one of them, uh, and this outpouring of the last decades of this incredible gift of Dharma, uh, loving kindness and liberation teachings of wisdom. And that, and that the response to that was really coming from them, you know, their own generosity and their own metta touching us in such a way that, of course, we'll help a boy and a girl go to school and eventually another boy and a girl go to school and eventually a school and the whole village able to go to school. That's that sense of, of pure connection. That's the, the quality of, of loving kindness uh, that has no conditions. You know, it was just really a, a pure motivation that brought about that. And it was more like a, a cycle of energy rather than being an object and, and a subject, you know, a giver and a receiver. It's more a sense of completion. The far enemy is, is disconnection, separation. The mind feels dry, rigid, rather than that fluid moisture of metta. Uh, and there's a lack of patience or acceptance of how things are, lack of spaciousness around the difficulties that come up. I, um, I went back to Burma for a month in March, in March and April, and I did a self-retreat up in the mountains because it was a hot season. And a lot of things came up that retreat because it was um, 
a long time, almost five years since I had the time to sit and been carrying all these projects, such as in Burma and our retreat center in Hawaii. And the last couple of years, we've been really busy uh, with the retreat center in Hawaii, uh, finding this land and negotiating for it and signing on it, and then uh, um, going through this process of getting a permit to build a retreat center on agricultural land. So it, it, uh, it, uh, it required a huge amount of time and energy uh, of Michelle and I and others to get this permit, which we finally did in December. And it, uh, it also involved some limited opposition, particularly in the form of um, one really angry activist, uh, an activist who has not been at all interested in dialogue or understanding. Uh, but only in, 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 in anger and sort of wanting to uh, disappear us <laughs> and disappear our vision and so forth. So I, <clears throat> on several occasions at public meetings, at uh, government meetings, and one-on-one, -on -one, I, um, I, uh, I communicate, you know, I stood up to this person. It's really intimidating, you know, kind of restraining uh, order level, intimidating. Someone that others have taken restraining orders out on, in fact. But <laughs> uh, somehow I just, I, the vision was so strong within me and I just, and I had the vision and I was patient and I listened and I just responded what was true and, and sort of dodged the barbs. Um, but of course, I, there's somewhere it went in there. And uh, when I went last month to practice, I really felt the pain of it. I felt anger. I felt real, a deep sense of hurt being born and, and raised in Hawaii. I felt the kind of betrayal uh, from my own sort of inherent connection there. And it was really hard. Uh, and so, but it was one of the things I really opened up to in, in both metta practice and being mindful of the feelings that came up. Until I came to a place, you know, of, I think, relative resolution through the healing power of feeling the pain, feeling the hurt, feeling the anger, and feeling a, a degree of understanding and forgiveness from going through it. There's liable to be other cycles of it, uh, but I, I came away from that having known that I was damaged in the process up until the opportunity to go into it and to allow those feelings to come forward. So some level of, of healing now feels complete on that, at least on this cycle of it. Uh, and it's just to understand that, that you know, metta isn't meant to disappear things that we don't like, mind states or people or anything. It's meant to help us really go in and on a deep purifying level, level, you know, to see, to understand what's true metta connection, you know, what's a masquerade of metta and some form of attached or conditional love, and all the forms of the opposite of metta, the resentment, the anger, the fear, the contraction that's there, and how if we learn to open to it, you know, to accept the reality of the experience of that pain, then there's healing. Feeling is healing. Mindful feeling or metta feeling is healing. 
that's somewhat what the breaking down of the barriers is, and I was going to talk more about that, but I'll try to fit it more into the next talk, how, how the barriers get more, uh, more and more broken down uh, through the purifying power of metta uh, and understanding, the understanding of, of love with wisdom, the selfless nature of love with wisdom, the sense the innate sense in all of us to belong, to feel that unification with all of life. And from time immemorial, we have this longing to, to love and be loved unconditionally. Why? Because it's an innate part of our stream of consciousness. It's an innate part of our heart. It's what's there when the bowl is polished. This, this luster is what comes out. So I'll just close with um, sharing a little bit of the closing circle Michelle uh, and I experienced at our British Columbia retreat uh, a couple weeks ago on uh, this island up in Canada. We're going around at the closing um, thing. There's about 60 people. And... People started to share from their hearts. One shared how, one person shared how the idea of who she thought, you know, all the other people were while on retreat didn't match what she was experiencing <laughs> as people were coming out deeply from their hearts. And of course, most of her uh, assessments, she said, were negative judgments about people, right? So it was just a really meta-filled circle. You know, someone else was speaking about the deep sense of connection and not having felt anything like that, you know, out in their everyday life. And then finally it came around to this one, uh, this one man um, who was, you know, quite pensive and had a profound experience on this retreat. And he said, said, I'm in a lot of pain right now, you know, as I going around the room, all of you speaking. He said, the people I imagined you to be, I wasn't going to miss those people. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> the rose opening its heart to give to this world all its beauty. Let's sit a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.